Today we're continuing our year-long series of Rediscovering Jesus, and we're now in the second week of the spring part of that series, Strong to the, um, yeah, Strong to the Finish. Each week we're going to be examining key texts in the New Testament that speak to how Jesus continued to be at work even after his ascension, and then consider how we see Jesus to be at work now in our lives and in the world. Last week, Pastor Brian began the series by looking at what may have appeared to be more of an ending with Jesus being taken up physically into heaven right in front of the disciples' eyes. But it was not the end. While he had finished his time of being present on earth as the incarnate Son of God, it was really a prelude to a new beginning. Jesus may have been gone from their sight, but in 10 short days, he would send his spirit to be among them, to live in them, to work through them. What was about to happen was going to change the disciples' lives forever, and it would change the world. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the news, the events happening around the world, we're still in need of some serious change. I see injustices and brokenness and wonder, is Jesus really still at work in our world? We experience crazy weather patterns. We hear about global warming, and I wonder, is God still caring for his creation? I watch young people make destructive life choices and hear about older adults being marginalized as if they don't have any more gifts to share. And I wonder... Aren't we all uniquely gifted God's children and to be used in his kingdom? And wherever I've lived, I've seen men and women working so hard to give their families the very best. And I see children and youth whose schedules are so crammed to make sure they're building the proper resumes that in the words of one student, some feel like they're on a race to nowhere. And I wonder, can we really experience that, that amazing grace that we sing about? Can we truly know the presence of Jesus in our lives? Friends, the answer to these questions is a resounding yes. And I can say that with all confidence because of the significance of this day today. Did you know today is a holiday? It is the third highest holiday in the entire Christian year. Now, you've heard about the other two because Hallmark discovered the marketing value of Christmas and Easter. But Hallmark hasn't discovered Pentecost. I wonder why. You heard the text read earlier from Acts chapter 2. Now, some helpful things to know about Pentecost is that it was first a Jewish holiday. It's 50 days after Passover and is marked by the festival of first fruits. And like most festivals in the ancient world, it drew thousands of Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast in the holy city. That's why we hear the names of so many people or regions in that text. You heard the names of several cities and countries and people groups. Now, why is it important that we know all those names? Well, I'm going to ask them to put a map up on the screen. And I want you to notice Parthians. Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Libya near Cyrene, oops, Egypt, Libya near Cyrene, Romans, Cretans, and Arabs. Do you see what I see? 
the people represented by those regions make a 360-degree circle around Jerusalem. Friends, this was God's brilliant mass communication plan. Bring people from every direction of the known world to Jerusalem. Unleash the Holy Spirit upon the disciples so they could speak those languages and then empower those people to take the gospel back home with them. This amazing story is suddenly communicated in all directions from Jerusalem. Now you might ask, what are some convincing proofs, perhaps, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that were spoken about in that Pentecost moment? It's a good question, and to answer it, I want to take us back 53 days ago. It was a dark night, and there was a lot of tension in the air. There were rumors of soldiers leaving the city late at night to go arrest someone in a garden just outside the city. Those rumors were confirmed as this band of guards, armed with swords and clubs, marched their prisoner, the rabbi, Jesus, to the home of the high priest by torchlight. Off in the shadows, warming himself by a charcoal fire, was Peter. Asked three times if he knew him, he denied it all three times. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian took us to the beach by the sea where the disciples had had kind of an unsuccessful night of fishing. The resurrected Jesus is standing on the shore, the former carpenter offering fishing advice, and he began to cook breakfast over a charcoal fire. It's important to know that this was specifically described as a fire of coals because there's only two places in all of John's writings where he uses that particular word. The night when Peter denied knowing his Lord and this morning when Jesus reinstates Peter and confirms that he still is going to build the church on him. I wonder what memories would be invoked in Peter's mind later in the years in his future when he smelled that smell of burning coals. This is these little nuances. This is what makes scripture reading so fun. Yes? <laughs> Back to Pentecost. Ten days after Jesus ascended in the cloud, we find Peter and the other disciples waiting in the upper room, just as Jesus told them to do. When suddenly there is this sound of a rushing wind what looks like little tongues of fire start dancing all over their heads, and each disciple is filled with the Holy Spirit in such a fashion that they are able to speak in languages they have never studied nor learned. And did you catch what some of the onlookers wondered? They made fun of them and asked, maybe the disciples were drunk. Perhaps they'd had too much wine. Well, they were under the influence, all right. They were under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. For Jesus was suddenly among them again. He was dwelling in them through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. They were speaking about the good news of Jesus in languages spoken by pilgrims who had come from all over the map. In fact, Peter is so emboldened, he launches into an eloquent sermon about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how he was foretold by the prophets and even King David himself. And he concludes this sermon with, Therefore, let Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That was Peter who said that in front of thousands of people, 
many of whom were strangers to the city, in less than two months. He had suddenly changed from one who would not even admit to knowing who Jesus was to a few townspeople by a campfire at night, to a bold, articulate preacher, unafraid and unashamed to speak about what he has seen and heard. And there's another specific detail about this whole story that I've always loved. The gospel writer Luke adds that at that moment, back in that firelit courtyard, as the rooster was crowing Peter's darkest moment, Jesus being held in that courtyard by the soldiers, right at that moment, looked at Peter. And I always think how Peter's stomach must have just flipped. And I wonder, what was going on in Jesus' mind? Well, what I believe is that while Jesus was probably very sad at the weakness of his friend in that moment, Jesus also saw the potential in Peter that once the Holy Spirit came down would be released on this Pentecost day. To me, that's convincing proof. Because Peter had not secretly gone off to take communications and speech classes. He had not been practicing in front of crowds. He'd gone back to fishing. Something outside of Peter made that difference. Something outside that came inside. Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit so they would become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And on this day, Jesus even brought the uttermost parts of the earth to their doorstep, not unlike the Boston area. Living under the influence, the disciples were able to remain strong to the finish, a fact that convinced one presidential aide years ago of the truth of the resurrection. Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. And he said it was the disciples' changed lives and unfailing witness that convinced him to consider the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Living under the influence transforms individuals, and then when those transformed individuals come together, it can transform churches. And when those transformed churches allow the Spirit to work through them, they transform the world. So what does it practically mean to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to have the indwelling presence of Jesus transform a life? The only disciple to see Jesus after he ascended was the Apostle Paul. When Jesus appeared to him as Paul was going from Jerusalem to Damascus to actually persecute and arrest Christians. Talk about a life transformed. Paul went from persecutor to preacher, from enemy to friend, from stranger to brother. He spoke of freedom, life, joy, and peace that comes from living in the realm of the Spirit instead of living in the realm of sin. 
But he also wrote with the honesty of one who struggled day in and day out to make right choices. In writing to the Christians in Rome, in chapter 8, Paul begins with, therefore. Now, whenever we see a verse or a passage, start with the word, therefore. I want you to ask, what is the therefore there for? <laughs> really, Brian's never said that to you? sort of one of those seminary cliche things, but at any rate, it is good to look back a little bit so we understand why Paul is saying, therefore. So if we look at the tail end of chapter 7, just for a moment, Jean Peterson has written it in really well ways for us to understand in the message. He says this, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with my whole heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Peters, Peterson aptly describes what he calls the, the contradictions that Paul is feeling in his struggle between his sinful nature that comes so naturally and the man of God that he longs to be in the spirit of Christ. He rejoices that Jesus has set things right. And so now we can move into chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What good news. Therefore, there's no condemnation. We who are in Christ will not have to pay the penalty of death for our sin. Jesus has already paid that penalty on the cross. And the same spirit who raised Jesus from the grave, who enabled the disciples to speak in other languages that they had never learned, who inspired Paul to write these incredible words of hope, that same spirit dwells within any of us who call Jesus Lord. And he's present here today perhaps prompting someone in our midst to say yes this very moment to the gracious invitation of the Spirit to experience the love and transformation only he can provide. Paul goes on to explain that even though Jesus has won the victory, there are still two distinct ways of living that are diametrically opposed to one another, and they continue to battle in our lives. Only with the power of the Holy Spirit can we even hope for righteousness or learning to live rightly. The law requires that of us, but we are not able on our own to achieve it or attain it. Paul says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. 
Living according to the flesh means living a life that is dominated by selfish passions. The word translated as flesh is the word sarks, and it means our innate or our natural sinful nature as human beings. And if you are not convinced that sin nature is real, then maybe you haven't taken care of a two-year-old lately. <laughs> I remember distinctly the first day our older daughter, Becca, sinned. She had been told not to touch the VCR. She knew how to put in her tapes for music in the stereo system and push play, but when the youth group gave us a brand new VCR, we told her, no, this is off limits, you do not touch it. One day, I was laying on the couch, not really feeling too well. She was playing on the floor, her younger sister innocently in the little baby seat. And I saw Becca get up and head toward the entertainment center. And I thought, oh, she's going to put in some music. But then she looked at me. <laughs> and then she looked at the VCR. And then she looked at me. And then she just started moving. And she kept eye contact. And then she reached out her chubby little hand. She touched the VCR, just like Nemo with the boat. And I laid there and I was like, oh, that was sin. That was absolute disobedience. And nobody taught her to do that. Now my daughter, Becca, has a 15-month-old. <laughs> But I have to say, having spent the day with him yesterday, she may not have that problem because he's perfect. <laughs> Paul is describing here a conflict or a struggle in which every person is caught. But Paul is certain of the hope that we have and of the victory that we can achieve if we invite the Spirit of Christ to dwell in us, if we choose to live in the realm of the Spirit under the Spirit's influence. So what does it mean to live in that realm of the Spirit? Does it mean to be so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good? I certainly hope not. For the sake of ourselves and for the sake of the world. Does it mean that we'll no longer sin? Unfortunately, no. When you or I choose to become a follower of Jesus, it is His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that enters into our lives. That's what we mean when we say, I've invited Jesus into my heart, or I have surrendered my life to Christ. We begin to live under the influence of the Spirit. It is just the beginning of our transformation. Peter and Paul's lives were radically transformed, but that was back then. What does a transformed life look like today? Well, let's listen to a story from one of our beloved Kidstown leaders. My name is Barbara Biederman, and I've been a member of Grace Chapel for 35 years. And I've experienced Jesus in my life through serving with, in Christian ministry, serving with him as well. As a new believer, I came to Christ at Grace Chapel, I knew immediately that I wanted to serve someplace, and children's ministry was calling me. Oh, what a joy that was to serve all these children. And I felt that uh, my job was to help the kids, help the church, and help families. And along the way, in my earlier days of teaching, I was blessed with having a prayer partner, Lou Raftery. 
When we prayed for the ch children every Sunday morning, we felt the presence of Jesus. We felt that each child was an individual and each one needed a special prayer. Did we ever have any challenges? Oh, yes, we did. Lou and I used to pray, especially for that child. And when later years we found out that particular child went on to be a CEO of a company or a doctor or a lawyer, we knew that God had plans for them. God now brought me into a leadership role. Barry O'Brien asked if I would like to serve as a leader in Vacation Bible School. I loved Vacation Bible School. There were joyous times and sorrowful times. The joyous times were welcoming 500 children each morning to know Jesus through song, Bible stories, scripture, and music. The sorrowful time was when Kristen Clark, uh, a seven-year-old girl who was a friend of Meg Woodworth and Carrie Biederman, my granddaughter, went home to be with the Lord. How do you tell two seven-year-old girls who were buddies that one of them has gone to meet Jesus? It wasn't easy, but God was merciful and he was kind. My very good friend, Georgie Bowman, and I lead at the 1115 hour at the Lexington campus. We have been so blessed with the children. What our, our favorite activity was handing out Bibles once a year to the second graders. And as usual, we always had one child who excelled. She was supposed to read uh, from scripture saying, and God chiseled out the stone. She read, and God said, chill out. People looked, they smiled, they laughed, and it actually brought a tear to their eyes. I love my kids, and I love my Sundays at uh, Kids Town, Lexington. Uh, was I ever reluctant about coming in? No. To church on Sunday mornings? No. I looked forward to it, because that was the highlight of my a highlight of my day, of my week, just seeing those young faces so eager to learn about Jesus. As I think back to teaching the many lessons to those kids, it brought a special joy to my heart, and I know that my prayers have been answered. Barbara got home this morning at 12.30 from an all-day trip to New York City yesterday and was here for the first service and is serving downstairs. Barbara Biederman is what I call a faith parent. She's been a faith parent for decades, loving on every child who comes for VBS or Kidstown. And while she may be agonizing over the fact that she's retiring this year, I know that Barbara is never going to retire from being a faith parent. Loving children is now part of her DNA. Her life was transformed by living under the influence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and I'm convinced she will remain strong to the finish. There's another woman I know who was basically a good churchgoer. She attended a local church fairly regularly with her husband and children. She was active in the Women's Guild, which was the group that took care of the linens and set up communion and served the baked bean suppers the first Saturday of every month. She kind of went through the motions, but she never felt moved. She knew the stories, but she didn't know the Savior. 
until one day she met Jesus through his spirit. There were no tongues of fire dancing over her heads, no sound of a mighty wind. She didn't speak in other languages, although she did teach French, German, and Latin at the local high school. No, it was just a quiet prayer of surrender, something she knew was missing in her life, and then she invited in the only one who could fill that void, Jesus, and her life was transformed. It was the 60s. She began volunteering at a downtown coffee house that served the young people walking the streets of Portland, Maine. She became a coordinator of all the volunteers and started a Bible study. Then in the 70s, she became active with a group called Faith at Work, which helped Christians think about how to take your faith to the workplace, Monday to Friday, and not just reserve it for Sundays only. And in the 80s, she learned about a new ministry in downtown Portland called The Root Cellar that was working with urban families and immigrants. She became their first volunteer at the age of 60. She was there to open the door to tutor young people after school. She initiated an angel tree project to get new Christmas gifts into the hands of children. She reorganized their food distribution program so that mothers and fathers could come from the neighborhood to get food for their families. She started a women's group that continues to this day, meeting Wednesdays for breakfast and a special speaker. Even people in her local church got involved with the root cellar. And now, 30 years later, the root cellar has children's programs, youth programs, a dental clinic, and so much more. A few years ago, they opened a second site in Lewiston. Living under the influence transformed not just a life, but a church and a community. Jesus transformed my mom from an average churchgoer to someone who was living under the influence of the Spirit. She was strong to the finish till Jesus called her home. A group of guys in a high school youth group heard about a community that had wiped out three waterborne illnesses by, just with the construction of a freshwater well. Children were no longer getting sick, and so they were able to go to school, and their parents were able to go back to work, not having to care for sick kids. So when those guys heard this story, they asked their youth worker if they could build a well. They shared their vision with the whole youth group. The church family came alongside them. A walk for water was held to simulate the distance folks had to walk in order to bring water from a river or a water source back to their homes. Grandparents, young adults, moms, dads with strollers, students and children of all ages walked to the river downtown and then back to the church carrying heavy buckets filled with river water. A year later, after having raised $40,000 with the help of their youth group, their church family and word of mouth publicity about their projects, I had the joy of taking 10 of those students to Kachabira, Ethiopia with World Vision to see not just the one well, but three new wells built because a few guys in a youth group had a dream when they were under the influence of the Spirit of Christ. Not only were their lives transformed and our church was transformed, through, but through the church, a community in Ethiopia was transformed as three new freshwater wells made it possible for 10,000 people to no longer struggle with cholera, typhoid, and dysentery. One of those young men was a young man named Derek. He asked me one night, why do I have to go to college? Why can't I just stay here and do this? I responded with, honey, I think your folks will be a little upset if I don't bring you back. 
But don't worry, God will use you at college. One year later, Derek was diagnosed with leukemia. He never did finish college, but went home to be with Jesus much sooner than any of us wanted. During his battle with cancer, Derek never forgot his experience in Ethiopia. He never doubted the presence of Jesus in his life. Derek remained strong to the finish, and his memorial service at 21 years old was attended by almost 1,000 people, and it was a witness to the hope he felt held firmly as a follower of Jesus. His was a life lived under the influence of the Spirit. While these three stories give me convincing proofs of the power of the Holy Spirit at work, transforming ordinary people into witnesses of our extraordinary God, the reality is the struggle is still very real. You feel it and I feel it. It was real for Paul and Peter. It was real for Mom and for Derek. And I'll bet even if you go down and ask Barbara, she'll still say, it's still a struggle. But it doesn't mean we have to be defeated. Living under the influence does not guarantee we'll never again struggle with sin. But it does tell us that we will not be defeated by sin. Gene Peterson sums up this section of Romans 8 well. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moved into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Amen. Are you... Are you perhaps sitting here today asking, like some of the folks did on Pentecost Day, what does this mean? Have you been going through the motions but failed to be moved? Have you known all the stories but never really known the Savior? Come under the influence of the Spirit of Christ. Allow your life to be transformed and you too can be strong to the finish. Friends, I love Pentecost. You don't understand it. I love Pentecost. Someday I'm going to have all of us wearing red and white because it's the liturgical colors of Pentecost so we can reclaim our third highest holy day. Wind, fire, sounds, tongues, languages, spirit. Just as Christmas reminds us that God loved us so much, he sent his son, the word made flesh, to live among his people just as Easter reminds us that sin was defeated on the cross and death no longer has the last word, Jesus conquered that enemy, then Pentecost reminds us that even though Jesus has returned physically to heaven to be with the Father, we are not left alone to do life by ourselves. He is very present with us through his spirit, working in us and through us, transforming our lives through us, transforming our church, hopefully through our community, and thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit can transform this world. Amen.
Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we give you the praise today. Jesus, we thank you. You did not leave us on our own. But you, you through your spirit, indwell us. You come down upon us. We may not see the tongues of fire or hear the mighty rushing wind, but I admit it, Lord, some days we feel like we need that. We feel that we need to see Jesus with skin on. So may we be that for one another as we come under the influence of your Holy Spirit and be Jesus to each other and share such love that people will know we are your disciples because of the way we love one another. And through that, would you transform our church and our community and our world. To you be the glory in this day and every day. Amen. Amen.